Heavenly Father, again, grateful for some time together uh, as your people uh, around your word uh, to discover your son and uh, his love uh, for us. And uh, so we just continue to pray as we look at the gospel of Luke today and hear some, some pretty challenging words from him. Um, help us to see the importance of those words and um, the criticalness, if you will, of those words and uh, the implications of those words, uh, not simply for us, but for those whom we love, uh, for our families, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, um, for the world Christ died for. So again, thank you for loving us and giving us gift in the word. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 today, and you're welcome to follow along on the screen as it's placed up on that uh, before you. You can also open up your smartphone or your tablet uh, to Bible Gateway or whatever your favorite app is uh, that you use to access the scriptures. But we're going to be about halfway through uh, this particular chapter uh, and section of scripture. Uh, now, think about it this way, and then we'll get into it really uh, quickly, and I'm not exactly going in the order that I went in at 8.30, so trying to throw you off, but, you know, a month or so ago, I introduced this idea of a travel narrative found in Luke's gospel, all right? I mean, not something produced by Rick Steves or um, not a, 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 a review on TripAdvisor, right? concerning someone's experience at a particular resort or restaurant. But the, the travel narrative is a structure, all right? It's a structure Luke uses to move the story of Jesus along. As Christ is on his final way to Jerusalem, Luke takes those certain geographical stops that Jesus makes and he shows us how Jesus uses those moments to convey lessons, if you will. Different locations produce different teaching moments, all right? So let me give to you the scripture for today, which is one of those moments, all right? One of those stops along the journey to Jerusalem, which he'll make use of for the sake of the hearer. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem, right? There's your travel narrative right there. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. For example, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he's going to answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And you're going to keep knocking, aren't you? And you're going to say, we ate and drank with you. Don't you remember us? And you taught in our streets. But he's going to reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People are going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they're going to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and those who are first who will be last. All right, that's the text. 
all right? A text which is more than prefatory remarks to Jesus' death and resurrection, right? A text which is more than life application moments for the disciples. It's a text which is confrontational, right? But for a reason. Simply because Jesus wants to bring eternity into perspective for those who are listening to him that day and for us as well. A text like this, think about it, causes one to pause and consider his or her own standing in relation to the kingdom of God. Remember that question at the beginning of the text, how many will be saved, right? Which extrapolates into, will I be saved? In essence, brothers and sisters, it's simply a warning on the way. Now, this question, how many will be saved, is nothing new. In fact, it was a point of debate and argument and theological discussion amongst the scribes in Jesus' day. So for someone to come out of the crowd and ask him this isn't strange, as strange as it may seem to us, right? Now, certainly we do know that there are Christians in other parts of Christendom who spend a lot of time in the weeds trying to decipher uh, books like Revelation, right? How many will be saved, but really that's not the purpose or why Jesus will use it the way he uses it. Because this is what I find so interesting about this text. Remember, there's a crowd in this question which is familiar to the crowd, But what does Jesus do? He makes it personal. He makes it personal. He takes this general question about something out there and he makes it particular. The question, he says, is not how many will be saved, but will you be saved? It's almost as if he are saying, it's almost as if he is saying, let's deal with that question first before we address the larger one you're asking about. So, the journey begins with a question, and Jesus answers. How does he answer? He answers with three warnings. Warnings which may make the hearer squirm or feel uncomfortable, but in so doing, drive us away from relying on ourselves. Drive us away on the tendency to evaluate ourselves based upon whether or not we've accomplished uh, something as graded by the world. Drive us away from, uh, from anything that would keep us from finding our security in the gospel. That is in the forgiveness and the, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the promise of everlasting life. So let me go back to verse 24 of Luke 13. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. So I think the NIV, this is the the NIV text, I think the NIV softens it. It says make every effort, but in the Greek, the word that's used is struggle, as in an athletic endeavor. Imagine an Olympic wrestling match on the mat, right? In an arena, right? The ferocity of that, the speed of that, right? The strength needed to overcome your opponent. That's really uh, that, the, the, the use of the word there, what it's after. Struggle to enter through the narrow door. Now, 
don't mistake it though, it's not about moral effort. It's not even about human responsibility. Rather, the struggle through one which enters is what we call repentance. The work of God on the human heart. The struggle is produced when the word, such as Jesus' teachings, calls one to repent and to trust in Christ, but the sinful human heart continues to war against it, wrestle against it, fight against it, right? So, for example, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, the author of Hebrews knew what he was writing when he said this, today, if you will hear his voice, what? Do not harden your hearts. So it's a recognition of that struggle once the Spirit comes and starts to mess with us, right? But how's it resolved? Well, the struggle is resolved, of course, as the old Adam, the old Eve, is put to death, if you will, by the law. All right, and that person of faith is then raised to new life with Christ by the gospel. A great example that we have in the church is baptism, right? Baptism, we see this in real-time action. Romans 6, uh, verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. So that inner struggle resolved as the Holy Spirit takes hold of our heart and our will. And if you're interested in reading more about that struggle, go read Romans 7, go read Romans 8, and the Apostle Paul himself can testify, right, to the wrestling match. So why this approach of Jesus, though? Why this approach is Jesus? And I realize, you know, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here in a sense, right? My assumption is you come to church because you're a believer, right, for the most part. Of course, I don't absolutely know where people are in their walk of faith and, and belief system. But part of the reason for taking on a text like this from Jesus, because you might be sitting there saying, well, pastor, I'm saved. You know, I believe in the shed blood and resurrection of Christ. I've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Um, he's done it for me. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Right. But a text like this reminds us of the importance of what we have, the preciousness of what we have, and the mission that we're called to as the people of God. With great discovery comes great responsibility. And that we're not just about playing church. <laughs> that why we do what we do, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Thursday, is because of this. It's because we want to get as many people through that door before the door, what? Shuts. All right, let's look at this, though. So keep in mind is this text. So why the approach of Jesus? First, consider his audience, right? Remember, uh, these are um, his own people, right? God's incredible love and desire to have the sons and daughters of Abraham receive his grace, right? Salvation begins in our own home. The people we worry most about, right? are the ones we love. Those who live under our roof are those who are connected to us uh, through blood, uh, right? Or, you know, and then it, like concentric circles, it goes out, right? Our neighbors, our coworkers, um, hopefully perhaps the strangers, right? But it starts at home. 
And Jesus is, is saying to, to those around him, you've got to have a much bigger vision for the kingdom of God. You've got to have a much bigger vision for salvation, that God is going to include the Gentiles. God is going to include uh, those whom the world calls the misfits. God's going to include uh, the sojourner. God's going to include the, the outlier. God's going to include the marginalized. Our family, Jesus says to his own, is much bigger than you think. Second, previous to this, as, as, as they're traveling and they get to this point in Luke 13, Christ is calling people to prepare for the coming of the Son of Man and the kingdom of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, the first words out of Jesus are, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? And he does this for them by showing them signs, miracles, he teaches in ways in which people don't have a response. But what he also recognizes is as much as he's been doing these things, people aren't receiving them. They're rejecting the miracles. They're rejecting his teaching. It's like, hey, what more proof do you need? <laughs> I am who I say I am. And then finally this. When the Son of Man and the kingdom of God come together, as you saw from the text, we're told there's this great eschatological feast, this banquet, this celebration for the people of God hosted by God himself. That's why we call communion a foretaste of the feast to come. See, as mentioned earlier, the patriarchs and prophets, they're the honored guests at the table, right? They're faithful. They're faithful. But yet, they're not the only ones at the table. That there's a lot of room at the table, more so than others thought. And Jesus wants the hearer to know and understand that the door is narrow, um, and yet only a few are going to pass through it before it shuts. Now, the hearer, even in Jesus' day and in our day, the, we, we need not despair. Now, thankfully, we're operating from the, the knowledge of how the trail, travel narrative ends, right? <laughs> we know about his death on the cross. We know about his resurrection from the tomb. We know about the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost. We know about the exponential growth of the church. And as harsh as the imagery and language is, Jesus does what he does. He says what he says to make a point, right? You know, sometimes you got to raise your voice, right? Sometimes you got to stop beating around the bush. Sometimes you just got to tell it like it is in order to get somebody's attention. He's simply saying to them that if you rely on your own works of righteousness, if you rely on your own perception of the world or how the world has told you you are to them, you will find the way shut. That the way into the kingdom of God is actually a lot easier than you think it is, Right? It comes with grace and mercy uh, and the freedom of Christ. It comes with the forgiveness of sins. It comes with the power of the resurrection, right? Be they a child of Abraham or a Gentile. You know, a great um, New Testament text which has a, an idea of this, this vision, uh, an expanded vision for the kingdom comes to us from Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost uh, story. And if you've ever read through that particular section of Scripture, Peter has this, this speech that day 
which is recorded by Luke. But let me give you a portion of Peter's speech from Acts chapter 2. And listen to the expanded kingdom, the vision. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is what? Let's read this together. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you see the expanded vision? All right. Because it's an invitation to anyone, regardless of station or circumstance in life, regardless of where they've come from, regardless of who they are, what they've done. It's an invitation to the hungry to taste the bread of life. It's the invitation to the thirsty to, 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 to quench that thirst with the, the water of life. It's an invitation to all who long for the righteousness of God and the kingdom of God. Uh, the door as narrow as it is and as permanently shut as it one day will become, verse 39 reminds us though, right, that there is still room at the table. Think of it this way, if you will, in terms of relation to the warnings that he has in the text. If you were to go back and read Luke chapter 11 and chapter 12 as a run-up to chapter 13, you would discover this theme of the shut door. Okay, this is not the first time in Scripture where this idea of a door being shut appears. Uh, chapter 13, the door is permanently shut, though. That's what makes it different from the other two. So the idea is this, Jesus says, uh, look, you've had ample opportunity to repent, uh, to believe, and yet you haven't. Some of you even ate with me and, and you called yourself a follower of me, think Judas, but you never believed in me or trusted by faith in me, judgment is upon you. Um, Jesus says this, chapter 13, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen, gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, this is his lamentation. And in a way, it's meant to touch your heart and my heart, certainly to bring us to a place of salvation if we're not there, but also to remind us that again, we're not here just to play church. That this message we have for the world around us is a message that Christ came into the world not to condemn it, but what? To save it, right? You see, their minds had been instructed in the Word. And let's say their hearts were even stirred by the works of Jesus but their wills were stubborn and they refused to submit to him. And this was the deadly consequence, he's saying. And I think it can confront us as well, even if we say, well, I'm secure in my salvation in Jesus Christ. Our minds are instructed, our, our hearts are stirred, but is there stubbornness in your will which needs to be rooted out by the Holy Spirit? We've heard of the, the miracles. We've had baptism in the Lord's Supper before us. Do we willingly and joyfully receive God's grace? Think of it this way. 
as eternal as the consequences for rejecting His grace is the equally eternal consequence for accepting His grace. Let me give you an example of what we call the great reversal. This is another theme throughout all of Scripture. It begins in Genesis. And you find it all the way in the book of all the way up through the book of Revelation. It's called the Great Reversal, verse thirteen, or chapter thirteen. Sorry, verse twenty-nine and thirty. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. You hear that language of reversal, all right? I probably shared this with you before, but. When you grow up with the last name Zucconi, like my name, you're last in class, right? I mean, the good thing was that I knew if we were going to be quizzed or have a test, you know, a pop quiz, or the teacher was going to quiz the students as we went through the alphabet, I knew when my day was coming, right? But oh, to be told by the teacher that, Tom, you're going to come to the front of the line today and lead us to lunch, right? Are you going to lead us out to recess? We're going to reverse the order. Oh, I felt like a king, right? But think about that, this language of reversal. There are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So how does it work in our life of faith as disciples? This is from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 30. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. He's going to put us in our place. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish. He chose the weak, right? To shame the wise, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. And brothers and sisters, that's the language of the gospel. That's the invitation to the table. That's the, the, <clears throat> that's the sign that, uh, on the, the, the door that says, yes, open for business, right? It's the proclamation of forgiveness, not condemnation. It's the death on the cross of Good Friday being overcome by the joy of the resurrection of Easter morning. It's the sting of the law and sting of death being removed by Christ who comes into the world, as we said, not to condemn it, but to save it. Of, God who, of a God who does what he does for us. You know, to the human eyes, the Pharisees, the uh, religious luminaries, they're the first, Right? They appear to be the most fit for the kingdom. They're the professionals. And then the unfit, the unclean, the Gentile, the outcast Jews, the poor, the marginalized, those who can't seem to keep it together, those that don't have a million Instagram followers, right? They seem not to be worthy. The Pharisees who want the first seats in the synagogues and at the tables, the scribes and the lawyers who actually held the key of knowledge which opened that banquet door to begin with, self-righteous, the unrepentant, they all find themselves outside and their invitation instead given to those the world would otherwise leave out. So that the unclean, those deemed not worthy, they would take their place at the table Brothers and sisters, where even though the door is narrow and will be shut, 
there still remains plenty of room. In Jesus' name, amen.